I'm Claire Liu, and I'm the CEO of Know Your Team software that helps you avoid becoming a bad boss. And speaking of bad bosses, I've got with me someone who has advised and helped. <laughs> no, Esther is possibly the opposite of a bad boss, but uh, someone who has helped so, so many CEOs, founders, managers become better bosses. I have with me today Esther Derby, who is an organizational dynamics expert and consultant and whose work I've, I've really admired. And, and I love your writing. I love your, your thinking on, on so many topics. And Esther has written three books, uh, all on whether it's agile retrospectives and thinking through agile teams behind closed doors and uh, the mistakes that a lot of uh, leaders make. But most recently, you wrote, wrote a book called, um, I believe it's The Seven Rules for Positive and Productive Change. Uh, so we can definitely talk about that. I, it comes out, I believe, in August, but you can pre-order it on Amazon right now. Uh, but aside from from working very closely with teams, uh, you know, in person, I know Esther, you're also developing an online course that'll be coming out soon. And and you got your start as a programmer, so your career has spanned all sorts of forms. But a real a real treat truly to, to have you here today. And I'm excited to ask you this one question about leadership. I'm thrilled to be here. So thanks for inviting me. Of course. All right, I'm Esther. Ready. Ready. <laughs> You're ready? Okay. Here's the question I'm going to throw at you. So the question that I've been asking leaders and thinkers who I admire is, what's one thing or several things that you wish you would have learned earlier as a leader? That could be a long list, <laughs> but I think, I think one of the most important things was that organizations are not well-oiled machines and expecting them to work like a well-oiled machine is an exercise in futility and leads to actually some can lead to really, I want to say horrible management decisions Sure, because organizations uh, you know, are full of people who are messy and complicated and they don't fit in neat little boxes. And if you're not prepared to deal with that as a manager, I think it's a, a really difficult job. If your expectations are that, you know, everybody, if everybody just does their job, all will be well and we'll work like a well-oiled machine. Absolutely. It's just like that. It, <laughs> I'm, I'm smiling right now because I think your insight is so astute about our very unrealistic expectation around team performance. And to your point, humans, we are fallible. Surprise. <laughs> We're messy. Surprise. I'm, I'm curious. I mean, you've worked so closely with so many brilliant, intelligent, savvy managers and leaders. Why is it that they don't, I don't want to say lower their expectations, but calibrate their expectations a little bit more realistically? Like when have you seen this happen in, in the, the client work that you've done and, and maybe in your own experience as well? Well, I like I like the word you chose, calibrate their expectations, because it's absolutely mm. not about lowering. Sure. But I think, you know, I think we have this um, legacy of thinking about organizations as machines. Mm. And those are some of the earliest metaphors of, of organizations. Yes. And most of the, well, I wouldn't say most, but some of the very early larger corporations were built around machines and having people in service to the machines. 
if you think about the textile factories in right. England, right, right. Uh, when people started moving away from being individual artisans to working in these big companies manufacturing material, mm-hmm. the people were in service to the machines. And so we, you know, we have this sort of legacy of thinking about organizations as machines and decomposing them into their parts. And if each part does their part, all will work. And it doesn't work that way with humans. Is there a better analogy than the machine? What is? What do you think is more more accurate? Well, I, I, some people use the, the term ecosystem, right? Which I think you know also has its shortcomings, but I think it does lead to to more holistic thinking about organizations, right? Yeah. I really appreciate that nuance and just the historical perspective, because to your point, like it's it's based off a very outdated model and a really outdated context. We aren't in service to machines, right? We're in service to a cause. We're in service to, to the folks we're working alongside or to customers that, that we want to serve. I know, um, you know, there's some academic scholars, uh, I believe like Margaret Wheatley is one of them, who's talked about likening organizations to organisms and to living, living mm-hmm. beings. Um, uh, there's, I want to say, I forget who, the, who sort of talked about this, but the idea that teams and organizations are also they're really, they're not just a collection of people, but they're also a collection of every single person's past experiences, the individual dynamics, the relationship. Like it's actually, it's also just not people, right? It's personality. It's like every worst boss right. each person has had is playing out in some way in a team. So this, yeah, this expectation that it's just a, a well-oiled mach- machine is, is so not true. There's an interesting quote from Akoff that I think talks to this. It says, an organization is not the sum of its parts. It's the product of its interactions. Right. Which says it really is about how people and groups and functions and subsystems within the organization are interacting that determines how effective the organization is going to be. Absolutely. So that's top of my list, you know, just. Not a mechanistic thinking. Yes, I'm so grateful, grateful for it. I mean, along those lines, so one of the things that, and, and how I originally first got to know you, by the way, is through one of the co-founders of, of Basecamp, the CTO of Basecamp, David Henmeyer Hansen, is a big fan of your work. And so he's the one who said, Claire, you know, you've got to talk to Esther. But so we invited you to be a part of Know Your Team, um, our water cooler community, and you've been an amazing contributor there. And so we had you on there for uh, an AMA and ask, ask me anything. And one of the things you talked about is right in line with with this idea of stepping outside this um, mechanistic thinking, which is you said that Mm -hmm. one of the biggest things, if not the number one thing that leaders struggle with is getting out of their heads this idea that they have to extract maximum value. Tell me more about Mm. this (laughs) because I think it's related, right? I think it's somehow interconnected to to thinking that if a team is a machine, that I must get the value from the machine. But tell me more. Another way that I sometimes talk about that is that we have this embedded idea. I mean, I don't think most people consciously think this, but it's sort of embedded in management practice that we have to extract maximum labor for people, from people. And I I have talked to managers who said, you know, my job is just to get people to work hard. You know, if I'm not getting them to work hard, they won't. It's not so common, but I think it underlies many aspects of the way we think about getting people to work hard what our job is as managers. Yeah. And I think our job as managers is really to, to make it possible for people to do good work. Absolutely. And to create the environment where 
doing good work is kind of the default. Absolutely. Right? So it's not making people struggle or getting them to work hard. Totally. Well, so so what are what are these symptoms or the things that you find managers saying or doing when they are in that mindset of the wrong mm-hmm. default, right? Of must extract value, must just get them to work hard. I mean, is it as simple? Because I what I'm what I'm trying to get at here, or what I'm wanting uh, to share with with the listeners is for folks who are listening. Am I accidentally just focused too much on the wrong thing as a manager? Am I focused too much on, oh, must just get them to perform? It's, I think, a difficult thing to bring to consciousness because, Hmm. as I said, I don't think most people consciously believe it. But I think a lot of that is kind of baked into management practices. And if you think about how we account for productivity, if you think about how we account for you know, uh, utilization, all of those things sort of have baked into them the idea that we have to get people to work hard, we have to be on top of them. So it's, it's baked in. And if you can have the awareness that, you know, I have to check these practices and not just accept them without critical thinking. Hmm. Yep. um, I think that goes a way to help. So, you know, if, if a manager were to find him or herself focusing on, you know, task completion or are people putting in, you know, are they here at the dot of eight and are they staying till five and are they taking too much time for lunch? And, oh, that person over there is staring into space. Those might be some clues that, you know, you've absorbed this. Not that it's the core of who you are, but sure. that you've absorbed this thinking, this um, extraction of labor thinking. Yes. And I mean, particularly in our work, software, there are long stretches of time where it looks like you're not working very hard. Right? <laughs> if that's metric, looks like they're working, hard, you know, like where you're thinking or you're discussing an idea with somebody else. I mean, it doesn't sure. it, it doesn't fit that idea people have of you know, fingers on keyboard typing frantically, you know. So I think we have to recalibrate around that mm-hmm. that word you used, recalibrate, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. I'm wanting to provide at the same time, maybe a, a counterpoint, right? Or, or, or a devil's advocate question. So if it's not about extracting value yet, right? Yet at the same time, as a team, we're trying to achieve outcomes. At, at what point does accountability come into play? Like, what should you be doing? How do you then create the right environment, right? To get the results if you're not thinking and, and, and you know, well, like how, how am I supposed to know what the results are if I'm not tracking people's time or if I'm not just focused on task completion? Oh, well, time and results are not necessarily connected at oh, all. I completely agree with you. <laughs> yes. You know, butts and seats isn't going to get you much. So I think it's important for people to have clarity about what, what problem they're solving for what group of people. You know, what is the challenge that they've been asked mm. to meet? That's super important. That's motivating. You know, meeting a target, not so much. You know, meeting a deadline that seems arbitrary, not so right. much. A reason to achieve, yes. If, if it feels meaningful to people, people will work hard, right? People talk about pressure and putting pressure on people, with, and they, they, they often do it through arbitrary deadlines, artificial deadlines, um, you, know, you know, tying performance to some kind of bonus and so forth and so on. But the sort of pressure that really motivates people is the the internal pressure of we want to solve this problem because it's meaningful, because it's important, because it's challenging. So then people will work. Yes. Right? And you don't have to push them. Absolutely. Well, it's <laughs> what is um, so wonderful about what you just shared is you are assuming that people have intrinsic motivation, which 
I think some like you're assuming, right? I know. Or it's like, oh, shocking. <laughs> well, they do until we kill it. Exactly. Which is, and, and no, I'm right with you. And I, I've done, you know, so much research and writing and studying on this topic. But I find it fascinating is to your point, we unintentionally, you know, when we think about just, okay, imposing pressure, control, right? We unintentionally disregard the fact that people are actually <laughs> have their own hopes, dreams, desires, in, are intrinsically mm-hmm. motivated and driven. They're, they are not, I mean, this goes back to the very first thing you mentioned, they themselves are not machines. Right. I, so what would you say, I mean, in all the client work that you have done, you know, in, in the books that you have written, I mean, would you say this is the thing that leaders struggle with absolutely the most? I mean, what are some other things that you feel like in addition to just trying to extract maximum value that people struggle with or that the managers that you work with namely struggle? Like, what are the conversations that you tend to have with a lot of your clients where you're like, oh, wow, you know, I, like I see this case so clear, like diagnosis A, right? Well, I think that the mechanistic thinking drives a whole set of issues. Sure. Right. When people think about their organization as a machine. And the other is, you know, how do you have difficult conversations with people? Mm. You know, if people are behaving in a way that that seems odd or like, you know, you don't understand, how do you have conversations with people? Or if people are, for whatever reason, you know, not contributing in a way that seems appropriate. How do you have those conversations? Why do you think we struggle with those kinds of conversations so, so much? Like we seem to actually, the the conversations that do seem to be the easiest for us as managers and leaders is, here's what we're going to do, or here's what I think. Yeah. Why do we struggle? Why do we struggle with, with, with the, oh, there's a conflict here. Oh, I need to give this person difficult feedback. What's, what's behind that? Well, I, I think part of it is we had, we haven't been taught how to do it. Sure. We've, you know, we may have watched um, our teachers, our parents, our managers, and our teachers and our parents are talking adult to child. Mm-hmm. That's not appropriate in the workplace, right? Yes. So that may be what we learn. So that's part of what makes it difficult because when people are talking to like children, as if they're children in the workplace, they either resent it enormously or they start falling into the role of being children often unconsciously, or both. And then you have another big problem, right? Yes. Um, so, you know, most most people um, don't love conflict. And so I often reframe conflict as it's a negotiation. You know, conflict is just... Ah. And so, so there's some expectation that is not uh, mutually held here. So that's a negotiation, right? So that's part of it. And mm. part of it is, I think people are afraid of what's going to happen. Yes. <laughs> you, they'll cry or they'll yell or they won't like me anymore. They won't like me anymore. Right. right. And all of which are possibilities, but it happens far less often than people fear. I've had conversations with people where it's like, oh, I didn't know that. Thank you for telling me. You know, as often as I've had conversations where people get upset. Right. Exactly. More often. I think we fear surprise, we fear the unknown, and what we we don't often recognize the flip of that, which is that we could also be pleasantly surprised. Yes. That the unknown actually might be good. And, or we wait, you know, we don't talk about it when it's mm-hmm. small, we wait and wait and wait until it's big, and then people right. blow up. I mean, you know, this whole right. thing about year-end, year-end feedback 
drives me. Yes. Because then people are in the position of feeling like, well, if I've been doing this all year, why did you wait until now to tell me? Did you want me to fail? Right. You must have, or you would have told me so I can do something. So yeah, that's totally. I love your mention of the year end review as well, because many ways we have sort of organized and shuffled all of that hard, difficult conversation, icky stuff we don't want to talk about. Mm -hmm. I mean, truly for selfish reasons, it's because we don't want to think about it and do the hard work of figuring out how do I communicate this? How do I share this? And so to the detriment of this person being shocked or frustrated that they're not knowing about it until later. And what we don't realize is while it seems easier or convenient or more placating to ourselves, it is truly a selfish move as leaders to wait to deliver feedback. Well, it, yeah, it's self-protective. You know, so exactly. this is not this is not totally totally on this topic, but it reminded me of this. I I worked um, yeah. at a client uh, several years ago who they kept saying, well, this is our number one priority project. And I'd look at it and I'd say, hmm, there are people assigned to this part time and things aren't getting done. And so I'd, you know, I'd ask more questions. And it eventually turned out that it was their number one project after 11 other projects. So they made a <laughs> distinction between it's our number one discretionary project versus it's our number one required project. So so it was actually about number 12. Right. So this group had at minimum 13 projects going on at any one time. And, you know, so I had these conversations with, with this manager, you know, he was, you know, senior manager in this organization about, well, how are people actually getting things done, you know? Do you have any projects at the house? Do you do them all at the same time? How does that work? Mm-hmm. No, no, I would never do that because nothing would ever get done. And I say, well, then why do you do it here? And he said, because if I tell anyone that their project is not being worked on right now, they'll get mad at me and they'll yell at me. So I could have people uh-huh. yelling at me every week or I could have people yelling at me once a year. I choose once a year. Wow. It was really revealing. You know, that was his whole strategy was I'm just going to kind of placate people all year long and tell them, oh, yes, we're working on it. Oh, yes, we're working on it. Right. And then at the end of the year, obviously not much would have gotten done. But his pain was limited to. Exactly. Exactly. It was, it's self-protective to your point. And and I think what's so interesting about that story, Esther, is, is you know, obviously I'm sure people who are watching or listening to this are going, oh my gosh, what a terrible manager. What a, you know, what a huge demonstration of, of someone who's completely inept. I would never do that. And yet it is actually just an exaggeration of something that is very small that many of us do on a daily basis. We see, you know, we think we have a piece of feedback and go, yeah, no, well, I, not right now. I don't want someone yelling at me all right now. He was an intelligent guy. Exactly. You know, he was a smart guy with a good ed- education and good intentions. Right. And he was a product of a system he worked in where, you know, he would get this list of priorities at the beginning of the year and it was the expectation that he would work, you know, his, his teams would be working on them right. all the time. Yep. And again, a result of the mechanistic thinking that we and assumptions that we were touching on earlier. I think most people who run factories would not try to run 13 different you know, jobs at the same time <laughs> if they weren't set up to do that. No. Exactly. The product also, yeah, like you're saying, of a larger system. Like there yeah. is something organizationally that is set up structurally for this person to think that this is the best path forward. Yeah. And yet to an outsider, it's, you know, obviously, uh, you know, completely off. 
So yeah. for for so for this manager or for for the other clients that you've worked with, what do you recommend in terms of having these difficult conversations, or what do you recommend to get rid of this protective mm-hmm. instinct that we have when we're faced with? tough calls or decisions or, or sorry, or feedback to give. Yeah. I think first it's important to acknowledge your part in it. So Mm -hmm. if somebody is off doing the wrong thing, did you actually give them sufficient information? Did you actually have sufficient feedback loops so they could self-correct? So it's always, you know, I, I, I'm fond of um, Lewin's equation of, um, Mm. behavior is a function of the person and the environment, right? So it was the environment there for them to actually do a good job. And that often means, did the manager set this up in a way that the person could be successful? Right. So own your own stuff. (laughs) And the second part is to have objective data. Now, you know, as humans, we can't be 100% objective all the time, but it's super important to one, have data and strip as much of the value-laden, value-judgment language out of the way you deliver it. So, you know, not labeling someone rather than just, you know, this is what I've observed. You know, I've observed that, um, you know, we agreed on this deadline and, you know, we talked about what went into the work and I'm noticing that it has slipped six times, right? And then allow the other person to have some input. Right. So maybe something was going on that you didn't know about. So own your own stuff, have some have some objective information and be able to articulate the impact. Because if you can't articulate the impact, then it's just, you know, you're just being arbitrary. Exactly. Right. There has to be some context and relevance and absolutely into to why this even matters and to, to why, you know, you're even sharing this to begin with. I love that. I talked to a woman once who was told at her annual review that she was too nice. Hmm. What can you do with that? You can't do anything with that. (laughs) It was a label, um, an evaluation. It didn't have any specific details that she could recognize herself in. And it had nothing about the impact. So she couldn't do anything about it except feel like she'd been blindsided. What a tremendous example. I wonder how many uh, folks who are listening to this are thinking, oh, I've actually, I may have given someone that kind of feedback before. I mean, we've all been guilty of it. It's, well, again, it's because easy. Because we haven't, we haven't been taught how to do it. So we haven't, we haven't been taught. We model what we have observed, right? Or what exactly. sorts of feedback we've been given. Right. We are, uh, we are a product uh, of, of our environment, like you were saying. Yeah. So, so Esther, here's the thing. You, you know, you do a lot of writing, you do a lot of speaking. What in this whole, you know, the whole world of management literature and thought leadership, what do you disagree with that maybe most other folks sort of tout in their blogs and books is there any sort of conventional management wisdom that, that you go every time you hear it, you go, oh, no, 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 I don't, I don't agree with that. Yeah. Uh, where does one start? Yeah, you've written, I mean, you've written three, three books about, <laughs> you know, all sorts of things that you've pointed at and observed. So rather than answer that question directly, I'm going to tell you about mm-hmm. a book I read that, um, that has helped me understand some of the origins of management thinking. Yes, Yeah. So there's a book, it's written by a historian, and she was actually researching, I believe it was the history of accounting, which sounds Mm. really boring. Doesn't that sound really boring? (laughs) Yes. Except when accountant. In her research, she came across ledger books that had not 
previously really been considered as part of the history of management or history of management and accounting. And they were ledger books from sugar plantations and cotton plantations, Hmm. where they had very, very sophisticated accounting methods about extracting maximum labor and maximum productivity Hmm. from humans. And it is from that same management milieu that scientific management emerged. I mean, it may not be, it may not be a, a heavy straight line, but it was from the same milieu. Sure, heavily influenced at the very, very least, right? Because I mean, I think researchers can go back to, I think, Aristotle, who is sort of the first person to sort of categorize leadership. But I mean, this is, yeah. this is incredibly influential, though, for, for the way we're thinking then about management than in the coming years or since then. Historians of management peg the origin of management to the railroads, but the, so there's more right. scholarship that says it's, it's actually on, on plantations where enslaved people were doing the labor. <laughs> so, you know, if you, if you think about that as being right. in the family tree, I mean, I don't think it's in front of anybody's mind these days. Or, well, no. most people, it's not front of mind. One fingers crossed, yeah. right? <laughs> but so it's not front of mind, but it's in the family tree. And so it's embedded in practices. Right. So I think it's always worth whatever topic comes up, it's worth thinking, will this actually create the environment where people can do great work? Yes. Right. Are we making it easier for people to do work? Are we giving them the clarity and the conditions and the constraints that will help them do great work versus are we just doing management practices because that's the way we've always done them? Right. We've been told that this will get us X. It's our so we received, just follow the- It's our received wisdom, right? Mm, yes. Passed down from our managers, taught in management school. Right. Brilliant, incisive insight, truly. I mean, this, especially just, um, I mean, what you said right there, received wisdom. Mm-hmm. We, we, I think, blindly as leaders swallow, oh, this is a best practice. Oh, we need to be doing, you know, performance reviews once a year. Oh, we need to be, uh, you know, time track. We need, you know, there are, there are things like you said, are, is received wisdom. So I love this idea to understand what is a part of the family tree. Where is this coming from? And that everything has context, doesn't work for every single person. And to your point, dig deep around, is this actually making work easier yeah. for people? Yeah. Who knew? <laughs> It's a complete shift in how people think about things. You know, can we work yes. to work hard versus how do we make it easy for people to do great work? Yes. So here's the thing, Esther. I, um, I, I mean, I have tons of questions that I could continue asking here, but I, I want to end with the book that you just recently written. Yes. The title really drew me in. So the title is Seven Rules for Positive and Productive Change. And I believe the subtitle is something to the effect of, of micro shifts, macro impact. And forgive me if I got that it's incorrect. Okay. Was that close. pretty dang close? Okay. As long as it's close. But I was so intrigued by that. What do you mean? What do you mean by this? And tell me what caused you to write the book as well. Sorry, two parts there in that question. Well, maybe it's because one of those things that is management advice that always just gets me going <laughs> that I disagree with is I, I, I think a lot of the received wisdom about change often makes change harder, right? And there's, there's an emphasis on pushing and persuasion and power, you know, sanctions, punishments, whatever. You know, people get labeled as resistors if they don't change as quickly as people want them to. But people, the reality is people change all the time. Yes. 
We're always changing constantly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's not that people are resistant, you know, to change per se. They may be responding to being coerced or being pushed, Mm. being asked to do something that will uh, make their uh, their lives more difficult or that's being piled on top of them or that they have tried before and it didn't work or they know something has been you know overlooked or sometimes because they just don't like the person who's bringing it right I mean there can be a ton of reasons yep. so this is a um, human and complexity informed approach to change so it looks at how do we make it easier for people to change, right? How do we engage them in, in a change rather than trying to push people or position people in such a way that if you don't do this, you're, you know, there's going to be sanctions. So that's what it's about. And ignore I love it. that systems don't jump. A lot of change efforts, it's, it's like people think it's a hockey stick. You know, we're going to go along, we're going along, we're doing change, things will go like this. That doesn't happen. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. I think a better metaphor is forest succession, which forests come into being through a series of steps. You know, it may start as, um, you know, um, bare grounded rocks and then a few shrubs come in and then some shrubs that provide a little bit of shade come in and that creates a little more moisture in the soil and a little shade. So some different things can grow. And, you know, at the end of that, that process of many steps, you have a forest and that's right more like how organizations change. You can't just slap a new process on something. You know, you have to help step through those secessions. Yes. It's incremental. It compounds slowly though over time, but that's how the gains, the gains happen. I love that. What, uh, what would you say is if, you know, if there's a tip you could share about, Mm -hmm. you know, how to, how do we make those, uh, one of those small changes? Is there one, one small thing that we we can, we can do to encourage the incremental change instead of expecting that, that hockey stick growth, especially in an organization or a team where you're, you know, I I get this question a lot, for example, from the managers that we work with of how do I get my team on board with this new idea or changing the vision of the company or starting a new product? Like, how do I make those changes? Oh, how do how do you get them uh, to be interested in some new idea? Yeah, getting buy-in, I think, is is possibly one of the most common sort of requests around change. Well, that makes me think of another story. You know, yes. you know, I have a million stories. <laughs> so um, I love it. Here's how not to do it. I was working with an organization that had decided they wanted to go agile. Air quotes, go agile, and. Um, <laughs> People were just wondering, you know, what's up with this? We don't understand. It's just throwing everything up in the air. So I I talked to the CEO and said, it would really be helpful if you explained to people why this was important. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, yeah, I get that. And then he went downstairs and to downstairs, right, from his office in the Elysium. He went downstairs to where the development teams were (laughs) and, and, and said, literally was downstairs and said, you know, we have to do this because my birthday's coming up in June and this will be my birthday present. You're kidding. No. I can't. Your stories, Esther. I'm like, every single one, I'm like, wait, what? Really? What? That happened? Yeah, it was sort of astonishing. So that's that's not going to work, right? Um, so I think one of the best ways to get um, people to listen to your ideas is to listen to their ideas, Right. So if you want to get people on board with with uh, some new way of doing something, find out what's going on for them and what they're struggling with 
And then maybe you can position what you're doing as, and this is how this, this might be helpful. Right. right. Or connecting the dots for them. Yep. Yeah. Connect the dots. Or if it's, you know, to, to start a new business initiative, you know, help them understand what the bigger context is. You know, we've, yes. we've been using this one product for a long time and our sales are going down and we realize the technology is changing. If we're going to survive, we have to do something else. Right. So that's again, connecting the dots with the bigger context. Yes. Well, I love the connecting of dots here, though, in, in two, specifically two dimensions, right? So internally, so for this own person, what are their goals, dreams, desires? Again, going back to intrinsic motivation, something we touched on earlier. And then I loved your idea of this connection of, you know, connecting the dots broader externally, making sense of the environment. Uh, you know, it's been written quite extensively about how one of the primary jobs of a leader is sense making. Yes. Helping absolutely. to sort of clear. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I, I believe it's Carl Weck who, you know, who's written a lot about this, uh, you know, assembling sort of the picture so people go, oh, this is a painting of a mountain in a, in, in a you know, in some fields and tree, instead of like, wait, what? What's going I don't understand. Like, I don't see. I don't get it. It's what? This is confusing. So both that internal and external connecting of the dots. A lot of the ways, particularly senior leaders often talk, no, not all of them, obviously, but often talk about the external is they talk about it in abstracts. You know, we want to be number one in the market. We want to increase our market mm. by this stuff. We want this much. We want to, um, you know, change our revenue figures so that it's, you know, revenue per person. And, you know, who gets behind that? It's not very engaging for most people. So if you, you know... If you want yep. to be engaged, you tell them a story, a true story, right? But you create, you, you have the narrative that creates that connection between the problem we're trying to solve, whether it's, you know, staying in business or whether it's solving some, some significant problem for your customers or making a difference in the world, like creating that connection, creating that narrative for yes. people, I think is super helpful. I could not agree more. And with everything that you've shared so far, Esther, I mean, I'm over here <laughs> nodding, you know, just with everything. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, for debunking the wisdom that is just simply received wisdom, and for, um, yeah, for, for, writing, for writing your books and, and, and sharing everything today. So appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. It's been really lovely talking with you. 